Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. The woke madness in history education is off the rails. Well, how do we change it? McClanahanAcademy.com. And because you listen to this podcast, if you use the coupon code PODCAST at checkout, you get 25% off every day, all day, 365 days a year on every class at McClanahanAcademy.com. So go to McClanahanAcademy.com, use coupon code PODCAST at checkout, and get a real history education at 25% off. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Can Donald Trump be barred from holding federal office because of the 14th Amendment? But we'll talk about that on this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter or X, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page, where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. It's always free to enroll. Get that free class, 10 Myths of American History, when you do enroll. And if you're getting this podcast before November 8th, 2023, use the coupon code SCOTUS, SCOTUS, S-C-O-T-U-S, for my latest class, How the Supreme Court Screwed Up America, and get $100 off. Now, you got to do it before November 8th, so you got basically two days to get this done. But you get $100 off that class. It's an awesome class, and we're actually going to address the Supreme Court in this episode, or at least sort of in this episode. So you're going to want that class. Um, It's really going to open your eyes about how the Supreme Court has gone completely in another direction from what the founding generation really wanted with the Constitution. You can also support the show by clicking on the support tab at brianmcclanahan.com, going to Spotify for podcasters, or clicking on the heart button under this video if you're watching on YouTube. All those are great ways to support the show financially. As always, though, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast so people know you love it. Share it around on social media. Leave it a text review. Leave a five-star review wherever you can. And comment on YouTube for the algorithm. And also send me those show requests. In fact, this is a listener-generated episode because I've gotten several people asking about this particular issue. And that is... Can Trump be disqualified under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment? Now, I I addressed this earlier this year because this was already starting to percolate. Could Trump be disqualified? 14th Amendment would disqualify Donald Trump. In fact, this has been going on now for mm, a couple of years. And I'll explain how, and people have been talking about, at least one individual has been talking about this for a couple of years. But it really gained steam Uh, this last summer, and um, people are now, uh, because it's before a a trial in Colorado, people are now really talking about it. So let's talk about the Colorado situation. The state of Colorado has put, essentially put Donald Trump on trial. There's a state judge there. There was a, uh, there are several questions which I'm going to address in this particular podcast 
that the judge has asked the defense and the prosecution to answer. And so I'm going to answer those questions that she asked based on the historical record and what a state judge can do in this particular situation. Now, this won't end the issue because there's, there's going to be appeals. But it would set a very interesting precedent should the judge rule one way or another. Now, the judge is a Democrat and uh, appointed by the Democratic governor of Colorado. So it's not a, not a federal judge, but a state judge. So the question is, is Trump disqualified from holding office in the United States because of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment? Now, most people are not familiar with Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. And I'm going to read a, the, the important part of it for this discussion. It says, No person shall hold any office under the United States who, having previously taken an oath to support the Constitution of the United States, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same, or given aid and comfort to the enemies thereof. Now, that's the, when I say that's the important part, that's what the media is wanting you to believe is the important part. Because here's the entire section three, and this is where it gets a little more complicated. Okay, so, so keep that in mind. The entire section three, the media is putting out a certain narrative. That came from CNN, what I just read you. All right, so here is what the, the entire section three reads. No person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president and vice president or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States or as a member of any state, state legislature, excuse me, or as an executive or judicial officer of any state, to support the Constitution of the United States, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same, or given aid and cover to the enemies thereof. But Congress may, by a two, vote of two-thirds of each house, remove such disability. All right, so there's the, in, there's the entire Section 3. So let me read that again. No person shall be a senator or representative in Congress, or elector of president and vice president, or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States, or under any state who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress, or as an officer of the United States, or as a member of any state legislature, or as an executive or judicial officer of any state, to support the Constitution of the United States, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same, or given aid and comfort to the enemies thereof. But Congress may, by two-thirds vote of each House, remove such disability. Now, in the original Constitution, Congress had the authority had the authority to prevent people from sitting in the Congress. They could do that. They could say, this person can't, can't sit in this House, can't sit in the Senate. They could do this. They could bar individuals from sitting in the Congress. That's constitutional. So by adding this to the Constitution, what they have done, what, what the 14th Amendment has done, is create a much broader power for the Congress to have oversight over not just the, the Congress itself, but the presidency and the courts in terms of saying, we can bar you from being in these positions. Now, I, I would not deny that. Congress has the authority to do this. The question is, number one, is this self-executing? Which means 
Does this part of the Constitution require Congress to be involved in it? Now, this is an interesting historical subject because there was actually a debate about this. And I'm going to read something else in a minute. But I'm going to address, before I do it, let me address the questions okay, that are being asked about this particular issue. What is the definition of engaged and insurrection? This is what the Colorado judge is asking. Please define engaged in and insurrection. Number two, did Trump engage in an insurrection? Is the so-called insurrectionist ban self-executing, or does Congress need to take action before a candidate is, is disqualified? The next question is, does the judge have the power under, the, under Colorado law to execute a, exclude, I'm sorry, exclude a candidate from the ballot based on federal constitutional considerations? And last, does the ban apply to U.S. presidents or only to other officials? Now, let's start with the last question. I would say, based on what these people wanted to do, yes, it applied to any federal office. Any federal office. The, the, the Republican Party, the hyper-partisan Republican Party, wanted to prevent anybody they didn't like from sitting in the federal government. Anyone. Unless there was an amnesty oath. And see, the other issue here, is, people don't understand, is the politics of the time. Why would Congress do this? Because of partisanship. You see, Abraham Lincoln, during the war, had what was called a 10% plan. And he offered an oath of amnesty. Look, it didn't matter if you supported the Confederacy. If you took an oath of amnesty, you're pardoned, and you can come right back into the general government. All you got to do is take an oath of amnesty. That's it. And if a state wanted to be readmitted to the Union, if 10% of the people took an oath of amnesty then the state was readmitted to the Union. 10% of the voting electorate in 1860. So you're looking at a very small number of people. Now, what the Congress wanted, and what they eventually got, sort of, was something called the Ironclad Oath. They wanted an oath that the person had never participated or taken action in the quote-unquote rebellion at all, had never supported it. The Wade Davis bill would have required 50% of the individuals in a state to have taken such an ironclad oath to be readmitted to the Union. Now, when 75% of the white male population in the South has engaged in the war, they're never going to get that 50%. And the, Cong the Republicans knew it. So you see, this goes back to the issue of who can participate in this government once the war is over. When Abraham Lincoln's assassinated, Andrew Johnson becomes president. He basically follows Lincoln's plan. He's a little more stringent on people like Jefferson Davis and Alexander Stevens, etc., etc. He wanted many of these people to be executed for treason. He, he was no fan of Jefferson Davis. But he was a lot more lenient when it came to uh, others' officials in the Confederacy. And many of them had taken the oath and uh, taken an oath to the United States and been given an amnesty. And so these guys showed up to Congress, and Congress said, you're not sitting in our body. You're not allowed to sit here. Now, they can do that. But this came down to hyper-partisan politics. And what all of these historians and legal experts have failed to disclose was that there was opposition <clears throat> to the Republican positions in the 1860s. The Democrats pointed out the inconsistencies in all of this. 
in the 1860s. They understood it for what it was, a rump parliament. This is no different than the Jacobins that controlled France during the French Revolution. You see, because there really wasn't any opposition, and if there was, they would just execute them. Now, the Republicans weren't executing anyone literally in the Congress, but they were throwing people in jail, and they were excluding people, and they were doing some really nasty things politically. They were searching mail. They were doing all kinds of stuff. No one was marched off to the guillotine. Of course, they did engage in a war that slaughtered uh, you know, near a million men, hundreds of thousands in the South, and they wanted more punished and executed. So certainly, uh, there were people that wanted blood. They wanted these people uh, literally executed. They just didn't get their wish. Now, that's the hyper-partisanship of the 1860s. This is where the 14th Amendment is born. And there were even Republicans that were trying to put the brakes on some of this stuff because they understood it. This is why Andrew Johnson was never removed from office. There were Republicans that understood that what the Republican Party was engaged in in the 1860s was so partisan, so egregious, that they couldn't even get behind it. You see. But that's the language that's used by these dopes like this Indiana University law professor that runs around as a quote-unquote expert who's a political hack more than anything else. You go and look at his vita. You go and look at what he's done. You go and look at what he says. You go and look at what he writes. He is a political hack. He is doing all of this for partisan reasons. He doesn't like Donald Trump. He has Trump derangement syndrome, and he's trying to come up with a way that could disqualify the president. He's been banging this drum for two years because he doesn't want Trump to be in office again. He is the very definition of an activist with credentials. That's all he is. That's the most dangerous kind of activist. He's an activist with credentials. Now you can say that, well, what about you, McClanahan? I'm not, I'm not advocating one way or the other. I think that the record's pretty clear that if you actually want to be honest about it, you would look at the 1860s and say, we really can't use that as a guide for anything. We're talking about a hyper-partisan time in American history. And if we want to be honest about that period of time, we need to look at what Democrats were saying in opposition to these things because most of the time, they were right on. They were spot on in pointing out the inconsistencies and the hypocrisy and everything else that the Republicans were doing. These people were losers. The Republicans were losers who just wanted to punish the other side. You know, they, they won. Well, they, yeah, there was a victory on the battlefield. But what they did in the process was destroy the entire United States. So, that last question, does it apply to U.S. presidents? I would say it does. I would say that this part of the, of the 14th Amendment, and you look at what these people wanted to do, would apply to anybody who wanted to run for federal office or serve in the federal government. So that, that question's out of the way. But some of the other questions are more important. First of all, what is an insurrection? And is this self-executing? These are the big questions, all right? The huge questions, the elephant in the room. So was January 6th an insurrection? Was it, and did Trump engage in such an insurrection? Uh, the law professor who is running around saying that he did is, uh, is named Gerard Maglicola. Magliocla. I'm sorry, Maglioca. Gerard Maglioca. Just go look at this guy, all right? If you think Ty Sidrely, 
Uh, anyways, I'll just say this. Go look at this guy. Gerard Maglioka. All right. So Maglioka is running around. He's been running around for a couple of years saying that Trump needs to be disqualified. Again, a partisan hack if there ever was one. And in the testimony, because he was invited to Colorado to testify in his expert testimony, that the 14th Amendment would be self-executing and that Trump should be barred from office because of these historical examples. You can tell just by looking at him. He's just so happy to be there. I mean, this is great. I'm on this trial. Look at me. I'm going to be on C-SPAN. I'm on television. This is so good. Oh, this is great. He's that dork that everyone called a dork, and now he's going to get back at people. That's what that's what this guy is. It's like the, the starstruck historians who are on you know, the, the comedy show with Jon Stewart, including Eric Foner, by the way. And this guy also said that it was a badge of honor that Eric Foner liked his work. So you know where he's coming from, okay? So he gets up there and he says, look, um, it's clear that the 14th Amendment is self-executing, that it was designed to keep people like Trump off the ballot, and that Trump engaged in an insurrection. Because what he said was insurrectionist. You know why what he said was insurrectionist? Because there are a couple of instances, a couple of instances where uh, a very low bar had been set for keeping people out of Congress or initiating a fine. And one of those was a situation in Congress itself. Now, this was, this was before the 14th Amendment. But in Congress itself, where a man named Jesse Bright of Indiana was denied a seat in Congress because he wrote a letter addressing Jefferson Davis as president of the Confederacy. Now, that Jesse Bright instance, it was the seat in the Senate. He was senator from Indi- United States Senate from Indiana. Jesse, the Jesse Bright situation was, uh, I mean, very controversial. And it was a slim majority that kept Bright out of the Senate. There were Democrats who said, this is, this is a witch hunt now. Because he wrote a letter addressing a friend as president of the Confederacy. That's insurrection? This is rebellion? This is, this is a, an offense? How ridiculous. And how do they have this letter? How do they acquire this thing? Was the real? I mean, there was a question about that. How do they get it? Hmm. That's interesting. A private letter? How did that happen? So there's another question there. And in fact, uh, there were people like James Byard of Delaware said this is this is just absolutely idiotic. Because a man writes in a private letter, addresses someone because that's the title that he's asking to be addressed as. He's not engaging in any insurrection or rebellion. He's not doing anything except writing a letter. But yet, uh, and again, this is before the 14th Amendment. But yet, he's somehow barred from sitting in the Senate. Now, the Senate can do this, but you see, that's the Congress. The Congress has always had the power to do this. The question is, does the Congress have the power to do it outside of that? According to the 14th Amendment, they would. According to the 14th Amendment, they would. But it would take a two-thirds majority to get it done. Or even, perhaps, if you just want to say a slim majority. There's not really any language there on how this would work which is the real question about all this. Is the 14th Amendment self-executing? Meaning, does it just happen? And would state court judges be able to execute the 14th Amendment? Now, I would say this about that particular situation. I would say, actually, yes. 
if you want to say that there has to be a court that can do it, sure, state courts can do it too. State court judges are bound to uphold the Constitution. In fact, this was an argument against the federal court system. The state courts could do all of this stuff. According to the original Constitution, state court judges can do all kinds of things. So a state court judge can go out and say, well, this is a violation of the 14th Amendment. Now, according to the, to the Judiciary Act of 1789, that process can then be, of course, you can appeal it to a state Supreme Court, and then that decision can be appealed to a federal court where you can hear that issue. But state courts can weigh in on this too. State courts are not subordinate to federal courts, and they can hear federal issues. So there's no problem with this being held in a state court. It's, it, look, that, that's not an issue. State courts could do all of this stuff. But now, did Trump engage in an insurrection or a rebellion or whatever, engage in that? No, absolutely not. At least not in, in terms of how that, that uh, particular word was understood. He wasn't trying to overthrow the government. That's an insurrection. Now, Lincoln, and this is where you get a lot of people talking about Lincoln and and uh, well, Lincoln had a very loose definition of this, and he had to have a loose definition, but that would be Lincoln's position and perhaps not a strong legal position. In fact, you could go back and look at the entire situation and say Lincoln never really had a strong legal position, and he knew it. And when you use the language that these dopes use, like Gerard Magliocca, in this Washington Post editorial from 2022... You understand where these people are coming from. Now, Jefferson Davis is an interesting part of this because after the 14th Amendment was ratified, supposedly, which it wasn't, but after it was supposedly ratified, Salmon P. Chase, who was the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, had tea with Davis's lead attorney. And he said, look, we got this 14th Amendment, and here's the thing. I think this is the only punishment that Jefferson Davis is ever going to get. I think what this has done is self-executing. Um, this is the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. So I think this thing is self-executing. Davis cannot be tried for treason. This is the fullest punishment he could get, which would be that he cannot serve in any federal office. And that's it. And basically, case closed. So this is what Davis's legal team did. They went out and pursued this, and the case was dropped. Now, the interesting thing, and even Maglioka says this in, a, in his paper on this subject, Chase backpedaled on this later on, and he's very confused about this. Well, why would Chase do that? Because it blows apart his entire narrative that this was the only thing happening. P historians have scratched their head, even uh, Cynthia Nicoletti, who talks about this in her book, uh, you know, Secession on Trial. Uh, Cynthia Nicoletti says she's not really certain. There's no evidence as to why Chase did this. Was it because he wanted to perhaps be uh, the Republican candidate for president and maybe he could get Southern votes? Was it perhaps to have a way for Southerners to accept the 14th Amendment and not resist it? Was it perhaps a way to ease Reconstruction? I mean, nobody really knows what Chase was doing. We know Chase had been pretty hard on the radicals as Chief Justice. He, I mean, look, Chase, if you take how the Supreme Court screwed up America, Chase was not in line with the radicals on several important decisions, which is why they removed Supreme Court jurisdiction over some things in the Congress. So Chase was operating in a way that, that surprised them. In other words, he wasn't being a hyper-partisan. He was being honest about some things. 
But the hyperpartisans in the Republican Party didn't like that a whole lot. So when Chase had an opportunity, he said, well, wait a second here. There was a case. He said, wait a second here, um, an opportunity to rule on this or make a decision on this. Well, I think this has to actually be, there has to be some process in this, whether a court process or a legislative process, there has to be something here. It can't just be self-executing. In other words, there has to be a trial or Congress or something, some legislative body has to act. That's one of the questions. In fact, I would say that if you followed this logically with Congress being able to remove this, then Congress or some legislative body or some court would have to act in this regard. Now, Congress eventually did remove virtually every restriction. And people could go serve in Congress. They didn't have to be convicted of an insurrection. They just had to say there, were, there was an insurrection. Congress declared there was an insurrection. And what Magliocca is saying, well, Congress has to come out with a paragraph and saying there was an insurrection, and then anyone who's, who t participated in an insurrection is now ineligible for office. That was the whole point. Congress just say there was an insurrection, and once you say there was an insurrection legislatively, then the 14th Amendment now applies. And so once the 14th Amendment applies, all these people, including members of Congress, cannot sit in Congress anymore because this is an insurrection. Now, again, how do you define insurrection? What happened on January 6th wasn't an insurrection. There was no attempt to overthrow the government. There was an attempt to ask, to contest the Electoral College vote, which was perfectly legal. Democrats did it in 2016. So how is it illegal in 2020, but legal in 2016? This is, the, this is all the hypocrisy and stupidity of the whole thing. And we know this happened in 1800. It happened in 1800. I mean, so this isn't unusual, okay? But let me read this piece of the Washington Post. It's very, very short. From Maglioka. Now, he, he, there's Bruce Ackerman and, and Gerard Maglioka wrote this thing. Now, listen to the language in this. This, this is very important. Okay? It's very important. So, you, you understand where these people were coming from with how they write. Apart from a relatively brief mention in its 800-page report, the January 6th committee missed the Constitution's preferred punishment for former high officials turned insurrectionists. What's an insurrection? The committee tries to persuade Americans that criminal prosecution is the only adequate response to Donald Trump's systematic efforts to overturn the 2020 election. I mean, asking for, uh, for the officials to go and look at voting irregularities, which we know there were things going on that were perhaps a little irregular. I mean, the evidence is all over the place. Asking people to go look for that is not asking to overturn an election. It's asking to have election integrity. That's all you're doing. That's not an insurrection. You're not trying to overthrow the Constitution of the United States. Trump left office. If Trump had stayed in office, if he had said, look, I'm not leaving, that would have been an insurrection. If he had said, if he had said uh, when, when on, at Biden's inauguration that, Joe Biden is, is not taking office. I'm, I'm sitting in the White House. That would have been an insurrection. Asking questions on January 6th was not an insurrection. At a rally, which Trump is allowed to do, he's allowed to speak at a rally, and saying you should make your voice be heard, that's not an insurrection. He had no control over what people were doing, and of course there's all kinds of things going on in that, right? So 
Um, Trump did not engage in any insurrection here. It's this is it's it's a such a soft assertion that it 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 really it shows you the hyperpartisanship again of American politics, which is exactly what was happening in the 1860s. The only forgotten debates over ratification of the 14th Amendment point to a better, less divisive approach. Nowadays, the amendment is best known for the Section 1 guarantee of equal protection of the laws. At the time of the debates in 1868, however, Section 3, barring insurrectionists from future elected offices, was the hot-button issue. Section 3 targeted Jefferson Davis, a former U.S. senator who was president of the rebellious Confederacy, along with other leaders of the attempted overthrow of the U.S. Constitution. Now, just that language. Davis didn't attempt to overthrow the U.S. Constitution. How? That, that statement is just dropped. They attempt to overthrow the U.S. Constitution. How? Was the U.S. Constitution still in effect? Well, clearly, because the United States Congress continued to meet, the Supreme Court continued to hear cases, the president continued to sit in office, all of that continued to happen. So was the Constitution overthrown? I mean, this is, this is an assertion that's just dropped. It, it is the same language that these dopes in the 1860s were using, or that these historical activists, these dopes in the 2020s are using. This is the most frustrating thing about all this. These people are so stupid they can't get out of their own way. And their, their evidence of this? These men had taken an oath to support the Constitution of the United States before the Civil War, then betrayed their oath by joining an insurrection or rebellion during the conflict. That's their... They take an oath to support the Constitution. Well, this is true. Did they violate the Constitution? Is secession a violation of the Constitution? What Cynthia Nicoletti points out in the book... There was going to be a hard, let me give you this, you're going to have a hard time, a hard time proving that secession was 100% illegal. Hard time proving it. And that maybe a court wasn't even, this is a political question, that a court wasn't even the right place for this. But you're going to have a really hard time doing it. Now, the Davis defense team realized that they probably wouldn't win that. I mean, saying secession was legal, that because of the partisanship, they probably wouldn't win this. But, but there was enough doubt floating around out there that something else had to be done about this, which is where the 14th Amendment comes into play. So Davis is just disqualified because of the 14th Amendment, and that's it. Also, there's something else these people say that's just completely ridiculous. Section 3 explicitly barred them from holding any office, civil or military, under the United States, unless two-thirds of each House of Congress lifted the ban. So what these two legal professors, legal activists, are saying is that this thing is self-executing. As soon as it was passed, anyone who had participated in it, based on Lincoln's understanding of what the insurrection was at the time, well, we just had a big war, which is completely different from what we had on January 6th. I mean, it's apples and oranges. But regardless, um, they said that was self-executing. Now again, is that true or not? Congressional sponsors of the amendment made clear they were following the path marked by Abraham Lincoln in his second inaugural address, with malice toward none, with charity to all. In the wounds of Ohio Republican Representative John Bingham, a leading draftsman, the disqualification clause represented an act of forgiveness on the part of the American people. That a parallel, I undertake to say, in the history of nations. Now, 
Uh, Maglioka has written a book on John Bingham. This is this is this guy's hero. He also likes Bushrod Washington because Bushrod Washington had this very expansive view of privileges and immunities. These people find individuals in American politics and they latch on to them and say, these are the people. These are the true founding fathers. Bushrod Washington, John Bingham. Well, why are they the true founding fathers and not somebody else? Because they have opinions that they like, you see. What, what you should get out of all of this is there isn't a clear-cut answer to any of these things. When they're saying this is just clear, we're talking about slim majorities. Slim majorities. There are people that oppose this stuff and had pretty strong points against it. But yet, we don't listen to them. This is just the majority. The reptiles in Congress, this is the majority. This forgiveness was a matter of life and death for Davis, who was imprisoned by the Union Army since his capture at the end of the war in 1865. If the 14th Amendment had been rejected, he would almost certainly have been convicted of treason and immediately executed. False. False. He would not have been convicted of treason. Why? Because it would have had to have been in a place, Virginia, which wouldn't have found him guilty. He would not have been convicted. Now, Davis was certainly worried about this, but I'm not so certain he would have been convicted of treason. In fact, I think Chase understood this. Yet as soon as the amendment was ratified, the army dropped its charges and freed Davis. Why? Because the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court gave to Davis's defense the out. Uh, I think you should go with this. Also, Chase didn't really want to bring it to trial. Again, this, this piece leaves a whole lot of context out of what's happening. But people read this. Oh, yeah. He will certainly have been convicted and tried free. No, he wouldn't. False. This is how the Washington Post and these dopes, Maglioka, who's now the star witness on the stand for the state of Colorado, or at least looking to get those looking to get rid of Trump, in the state of Colorado, I should say, looking to get rid of Trump. He's their star witness. They went back and, oh, yeah, this guy's good. This guy, look, he agrees everything we're saying. Everything we're saying. But when he writes garbage like this, hyper-partisan garbage like this, you can't trust this guy at all. After ratification, Congress quickly passed legislation implementing the amendment. Ah, Congress quickly passed legislation implementing the amendment. So what Maglioka is running around saying is this is self-executing, yet in this piece he's saying, well, Congress executed the amendment. In other words, Congress had to do something about it. In fact, that was his argument before it became clear that that may not work. Now the amendment is self-executing. You see? Hmm. If Congress, who wrote and ratified the amendment, thought that they had to pass legislation to the effect of implementing the amendment, well, then I would think that's what Congress has to do, and this is no longer self-executing. And a court can't do this because there has been no declared insurrection. There has been no... I mean, nothing. Nothing. You see? That's the problem. These people are going to run into this issue. Congress passed legislation. Later, Congresses pardoned many ex-Confederates by the requisite two-thirds vote, but Davis remained disqualified until his death in 1889. 
In Bingham's words, disqualifying rebel leaders from future offices allowed the great mass of the population of the southern states to retain their full political powers by rejoining the Union and leaving the past behind. Though Davis survived to publish an autobiography that helped to advance the lost cause myth, which of course isn't a myth, it's a fact, of the Civil War, the government did not make him a martyr to that cause. In calling for Trump's criminal prosecution, the January 6th committee is ignoring the Lincolnian principles embodied in the 14th Amendment. <laughs> you see, it's all the Lincolnian principles. Committee members might also be underestimating the difficulty of a criminal prosecution. Assuming he were indicted, Trump would not face a jury anytime soon because his lawyers have demonstrated a remarkable ability to drag out court cases. In the meantime, he would remain free to pursue his ongoing campaign for the White House. You see, this is the problem. This is back in December of 2022. Maglioka and Ackerman wrote this piece. This is a year ago. And they're worried about all this stuff dragging out while Trump is still running around for office. And now you've got, I mean, this this is kind of played out a little bit because you've got you know, prosecutions going on, some other things. So we're going to see. I mean, this is this is really remarkable in many ways. Uh, so this is why they've gone to the states. Well, maybe the state, we can get it through the states faster. We can get it through the states. The judge in the middle of November is going to issue a ruling. My hunch is that she is going to decide against Trump. The mere fact that she held this trial, that said it can go to trial, means that she's going to rule against Trump. She's going to seize the opportunity. It's going to set, it's at least going to establish a case log, right? And if you, you know, This is the common law. It's going to establish a case log. And so now this is going to be appealed. It will be appealed to the, to the Colorado Supreme Court. And then from there, which could take time, and then from there, it's going to be appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, that would actually be Trump's best case scenario. You see, that would be his best case scenario. What, what the idiots in Colorado hope to happen is this. Once Colorado does this and, and sets a precedent here, if Trump is barred from being on the ballot in Colorado, okay, if that happens then other states will follow suit and Trump will be left off the ballot in other states. He is clearly the front runner for the Republican Party, whether you like Trump or not. He's the front runner. And if they do this, if they bar him in Colorado, other states will follow suit. They'll quickly file lawsuits in other states because this will just apply to Colorado. It won't apply to any other state, particularly in blue states. That's where they're going to do it. So Trump will be left off the ballot in blue states, I'm telling you, I said it on this program before, this is the most dangerous thing that can happen. I believe what would happen if, if that does happen, it will be ex expedited to the state Supreme Court and the U.S. Supreme Court will rule on it very, very quickly. They'll get involved. They're going to have to. They're going to have to act fast because uh, if this is the case... They're going to have to act fast. Now, what's going to happen in all that? My prediction. I'm going, to, I'm going to say it here. Colorado's going to decide that Trump is not eligible to be on the ballot. And I could be wrong. You could go back for this in two weeks and say, McClanahan, you were dead wrong. Okay. And I'll, I'll say I was wrong. But I think Colorado's, this judge is going to say Trump can't be on the ballot. It'll be appealed to the state Supreme Court, which will probably happen um, 
relatively, well, I would, they might drag a little bit. Okay, because here we are at the end of 2023. So it could be 2024 before they even hear that case. They'll appeal it. So we're talking maybe early 2024. They'll make a decision. We're now dragging into the election season because the election is, is less than a year away. So Trump is going to be uh, you know, presumed. The, the, the voters of the Republican Party won't care. They'll look at this as a partisan move because of a Democrat on the bench. Colorado's a Democratic state. They won't care. So Trump will be ineligible to be on the ballot in Colorado. He'll fight it. His lawyers will get out there. They'll fight this. But it's going to be decided in the Colorado Supreme Court that they're going to uphold this decision. At that point, his team will then take it to the Supreme Court immediately. Okay, so this will be appealed to the Supreme Court. And on, on the basis of the 14th Amendment, is this the correct interpretation of the 14th Amendment? And my prediction is the Supreme Court will rule against California. Now, in the meantime, I think you're going to see other states do the exact same thing, which means that by the time we get to the real heat of the election season and Trump looking for the nomination next summer, this is the important part. I think all this will happen before June of 2024. Okay, because that's when you get to the summer of next year is when Trump would get the nomination. Okay, in, in, the, middle of the, in the middle of the summer. We're going to have all of the primary season. Trump's going to win all those because the voters won't care. So all this will happen by June of 2024. This, other states are going to try to keep him off the ballot. Trump will win those, because those, I think the Supreme Court will go with Trump. I don't think you're going to get a 5-4 to four decision the other way. Because the justices are going to look at this for what it is, as hyper-partisanship on the, amount, on the in blue states, because that's who's going to go for it, right? Blue states. No red states are going to do this. So you're going to have a situation where just blue states are going to leave them off the ballot. And I just don't think that you're going to get five justices with it being a six to three split. Right? You're going to get the three, the three lefties. Would two of the Republicans, you might get Roberts, but I don't think the other five of them are going to go along with this. I think it would be like a five to four decision. Okay. Trump is going to be put back on the ballot. He clearly didn't, this, this doesn't apply to him. Congress didn't pass anything. Congress didn't do anything. So he's back on the ballot. That is going to create, though, a lot of juice for the other side, saying, well, here it is, Supreme Court, partisan Supreme Court. We've got a, we, democracy is not at work here, even though this whole thing is not democratic because this is happening in state courts. So it really isn't democratic at all. The courts are trying to keep Trump off the ballot. The people are wanting Trump on the ballot. The courts are keeping Trump off the ballot, but the Democrats are going to sell it that way. And Trump will be nominated by the Republican Party. And if polling data holds up, he's going to win. So I don't know how this is, again, all this is going to shape. This is my prediction. I think this is a really bad situation, a really bad legal argument based on the history, a really bad historical argument that Maglioka and, these other, and this other doper are suggesting. Because they're not taking into account the hyperpartisanship of the Republican Party in the 1860s. There were certainly Democrats, when you look at the Jesse Bright situation, who were sounding the alarm. There were certainly Democrats who were sounding the alarm about the 14th Amendment. Heck, even two states rescinded the ratification of it, which means it wasn't legally ratified. Because they understood what this thing was. A hyperpartisan amendment designed to to essentially handicap 
any political opposition for the Republican Party. That was the point. And it inverted the entire structure of the United States government through a single amendment, at least theoretically. Ultimately, it has through Supreme Court decisions. Even people were talking about this in the 1860s. So this is the issue. And uh, I think that when you go back to the questions, and let me go back, let me review these questions. Trump did not engage in an insurrection. Um, Congress needs to take action. It's not self-executing. There was some question about that. And actually, Davis was, uh, charges were dropped because of a question, because of perhaps self-executing amendment, but then Chase backpedal on that, and Congress actually acted on it. So it was not self-executing. Never was intended to be self-executing. The Congress itself proved it was that was the case. State courts can weigh in on this if they want to. And I think they're going to. If we look at the structure, the federal structure of the Constitution, state courts could rule on this stuff, if rule on this stuff and engage in these things if they wanted to. Um, and, but this is just going to go through the appeal process. And does it apply to U.S. presidents? Yeah, it can. It can apply to U.S. presidents. It can apply to anybody who has office, civil office. So, um, but that's my prediction on how this is going to go. We'll see if I'm right or wrong. See you next time on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.